This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here, returned from the mountains. We have our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And joining me to pick their brains about everything they saw is our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. So we are at this really exciting midway point in festival season, I guess, where uh, Telluride and Venice Film Festivals have wrapped up. The Toronto Film Festival is starting. Richard is flying there mere minutes after we finish recording. And Richard and Mike, you guys were there in Telluride. You wrote a very, as Richard said, Anna Karen in a length recap of what you saw <laughs> for VF.com. Um, so I basically just wanted to hear what you guys saw out there. And I wanted to start with kind of a big question Obviously, there was a lot of good stuff. I think you both shared a lot on Twitter about what got you excited. Was there any huge story, like number one breakout, this is the thing everyone was talking about out of Telluride? I mean, I, I don't want to speak for Mike or Rebecca Keegan, who is the other contributor to that Anna Karenina link recap of the weekend. But I think the big story, as it always is <laughs> these days, is Netflix. Uh, you know, yeah. they had a movie there that was called Roma, Alfonso Cuaron's new film that I just went nuts over and everyone else seemed to as well. And Ted Sarandos was, you know, at every thing, event, screening, whatever. Like, and I think that I think this I bought is... a, a smoothie from him at one point, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he gave me a ride to the airport. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I think this is the one that breaks through for them, finally. Yeah, I mean, Roma is unbelievably... I'm, like, not wanting to say too much. It's really, really unbelievably worth seeing, put it that way. And I, I went into it fairly, you know, with a clear head and not too much advanced knowledge of what was what it was going to be, and that was a really nice way to see it. And Netflix has hired an army of like the army of awards consultants. Just like everybody who knows how to do awards consulting almost is working for Netflix now. And they obviously have a lot of money to spend. And in this, they have a very, very good film. I think what opened up the opportunity for them is that it's a really hard one on paper because there's no star, no recognizable stars. It's black and white. It's all in, you know, Spanish and other foreign languages, not English. Yeah, like um, indigenous dialect. Yeah. yeah. And... Um, and so I think that that created an opportunity for Netflix to actually get into business with Alfonso Cuaron, which otherwise would have been hard to do because especially for the day and date, you know, their, their insistence on releasing things on Netflix the same day that they come out in theaters. Um, I mean, I always think of festivals in terms of the movies that we've been hearing about that aren't good, the movies we haven't heard about that are good, and then the movies we've been hearing about that are so good that they really get sent into the stratosphere and Roma really felt like that. So the headlines about Roma, I mean, you talk about it, it being engaging and something that they are, you know, going to be putting in theaters at the same time as on Netflix. But it sounds like they're actually going to try to give it more of a theatrical push, which seems to me like part of that strategy we're talking about, where part of the knock on Netflix has been that it's kind of killing movie theater. It seems like maybe they're taking a little bit of the lessons that other people have said and not totally doing it the bullheaded Netflix way that has rankled some people in the Academy in the past, it seems. Yeah, I mean, here's a funny little detail that I feel like is telling in some ways. 
So the movie starts and it's all, you know, it's the typical, you know, little pre-roll of like production company logos and shit like that. And we did not get the white and red Netflix bwomp intro thing. (laughs) It's actually just this kind of animation that's just these white lines on a black, you know, screen basically just forming. And then it's just a simple N and it doesn't say Netflix or anything. It's just, it's, it's a much more like austere sophisticated way. I mean, later in the credits, it says Netflix presents or presenta, you know, but like still, I feel like they're treating this one differently already. You know, it just in terms of how they're, how it's being rolled out, you know, and the way that it's being talked about. I mean, Mike, you have more insight on this because you talked to someone, I think at participant, one of the co-producers about theatrical release, right? They told you something along those lines. Yeah, I did meet Jonathan King, who is basically the lead producer at Participant. And Participant are the ones who worked with Quaron from the beginning on this. And I think it's interesting to note that Participant was founded really as as kind of almost like an activist production company. Like they wanted to actually sort of solve real world problems. And and there is something at some level kind of do-goody about the central concept of Roma because, you know, instead of telling his own story of his childhood, he tells the story of his childhood through the eyes of his nanny, who was, who I think at the time, you know, judging from the film, nobody paid that much attention to except the little kids who all basically thought of her as their real mother. And so, so there is this kind of, you know, a a lofty goal for this thing. And I, and again, I think that that is tied into what makes it a challenge for traditional distributors. It's such a perfectly executed, beautiful version of that, but it's still, it's not, you know, things blowing up and, you know, like giant uh, action Someone is shot out of a cannon. That's true. <laughs> no spoiler. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, I think that they felt that Netflix would give them the biggest distribution, not just um, in the United States, but around the world in a lot of places that have no access to um, to theaters. But it also was very clear that Netflix was really trying to release it in as many theaters as they could manage and, and figure out. And their argument is like, look, if you're nowhere near an art house, you can actually watch this on Netflix. Like there's a lot of people in Mexico who are going to watch this who are nowhere near an art house uh, and, and in other countries around the world. But they clearly have heard that like, you know, there's a world of people who want to see these movies on big screens. Alfonso Cuaron, you want to see Alfonso Cuaron stuff on a big screen. He's, he directed Gravity, you know, yeah. if you can. And this is is not Gravity, but it is gorgeous on a big screen. It's big, as you put it, it's silvery. Inc- it's incredible. Each frame is like a, you know, beautiful thing to look at. Yeah, I mean, on the tactical merits what he does in that movie is insane i mean Mm -hmm. it's like david lean meets you know fellini meets i mean it's Mm -hmm. just like such a an incredible (laughs) melange of like film references and while still maintaining a truth you know a a core truth of like who it's about and like why it's about that and like he doesn't get lost in all the grandeur you know the the, the, the theme the smaller themes of the movie do not get lost in all that which is a tricky balance to strike you know yeah Um, and he does and so yeah I you know I I think I said in the the, the, the recap piece like if you can see that fucking thing projected on the side of a mountain (laughs) do that the bigger the better yeah so a question uh, that's kind of, I feel like we have to ask about everything that's hit at a festival, and it's trickier with Netflix because we're not really going to see box office numbers for it. It'll be in theaters, but that's not what's going to be important. Does this feel like something that once broader audiences get to see, like beyond, broader beyond like the several hundred people who see it at Telluride, are people going to fall for this automatically? I, I think of Mudbound, which a lot of people really respected, but was a challenging movie and didn't seem to like hit a cultural nerve. Does Roma have more potential to do that? I think so. I mean, I just talked to someone last night, uh, you know, a new carpetbagger for New York Times, Kyle Buchanan, who did not like the movie at all. 
And I think another thing about the movie, you know, given that it's Koran, who is from, you know, an upper middle class Mexico City background, telling the story of his nanny, who is, you know, of indigenous descent, there will probably be some criticism of the way that it handles race and class and all that. I think it handles it pretty honestly and, and openly. So, yeah, but I think that on the tactical merits, again, like the visuals in the movie are just sort of undeniably amazing. And, I, I don't, you know, yeah, I think that's kind of Katie, to your point, that's why I've been a little bit not wanting to say too much, because mm-hmm. I think it, you, it's a delicate thing. I was in 110 percent from the beginning to the end, but it's a challenging film. I think it's much better than Mudbound as a film, just like sort of objectively. But I. But it's a hard one to get into. And I think yeah. especially like the opening credits go on for about two minutes. You know, it's yeah. very <laughs> hard to imagine really watching this thing on Netflix with your phone nearby and like your pets and kids and everything else distracting you. That, that's, that's, I think, why everyone is saying, please see it in a theater. But, to you know, on the other hand, the people in the business are saying, you know, tell us how to get people to come to a theater to watch a movie like this. Like we don't have yeah. any of the traditional <laughs> levers. I, I right. recommend seeing it with a coworker or a boss, if, if preferable, and walking out of the theater together, being so overcome with emotion that you have to have a sort of stilted, like, "Well, that was really good conversation." <laughs> as Mike and I did, <laughs> we were, we were yeah. was, as me and Mike seeing Lady Bird last yeah. year. Yeah, oh, totally, totally. We were, yeah, I know. Did, that, never, did that? Did you like that? <laughs> yeah, it was very, yeah. So <laughs> like bonding opportunities on top of everything else. Can I ask you one more question about the Netflix strategy? Mike, you mentioned that Netflix has sort of snapped up everyone, every award strategist that they could find. I, ha- I'm, I have this working theory in my head that, because Netflix is doing this in a number of areas. I've heard from like people who work in the sound industry, people who are publicists, like that Netflix is just grabbing talent, grabbing talent, grabbing talent. And um, I wonder if that's as much about Netflix wanting the best people as it is about them wanting to leave no one else left for anyone else yeah. to use. You know yeah. what I mean? And so, like, if they have all the award season strategists, what is everyone else supposed to do? You know? So Yeah, I think the Netflix strategy, like a lot of startup, Silicon Valley startup strategies, is to take over the whole world. You know? They want to be the Amazon of, um, of entertainment. And, and right. Ted Sarando said something when we were talking afterwards that, you know, I, I don't want to get into the details of the conversation, but it was clear that there, there's a version of this in Ted's mind where, like, Netflix is entertainment, period. And so, mm. you know, to the extent that they overinvest in talent now so that they drive everybody else out of business, I think that's pretty openly their model, isn't it? I mean, that's well, what they're doing. People at Disney are going to be pretty surprised to hear that. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, that's why Disney is is trying to figure out, you know, and put together a Netflix competitor that's big yeah. enough to take it on, you know, and that's why yeah. they bought Fox and that's why they're trying to figure out Sky and, and Star and India and all the rest of it so that they, and use Hulu, like they, they need to build something that's as big as Netflix to take it on. Yeah, I mean, it's like Rebecca Keegan said to me, uh, in Cannes last year when comparing Netflix and Amazon. She was like, Amazon wants to play the game. Netflix wants to change it. And, you mm-hmm. know, they yeah. I think they, they have much more uh, grandiose visions of where they're going to be in the kind of cultural entertainment sphere. I think Amazon has, you know, they, <laughs> they have their whole other thing happening. And like, I think the entertainment angle of it is sort of more of a an added perk or a bonus or something, whereas Netflix really is focused on this. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody um, subscribes, any of our listeners subscribe to The Ankler, which is Richard Rushfield's newsletter, but he's pretty good on following the twists and turns of Netflix. He's very cynical about everything, um, but uh, <laughs> but he has a very interesting take on Netflix and, and is, is worth reading for people who really are interested in that. 
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Uh, so, Joanna, Roma was definitely the thing I wanted to hear these guys talk the most about. It seemed like the most effusive praise. What did you uh, follow Telluride and get curious about? I have two. I'll start with um, the first man, which, you know, we were a little down on last week. And then, like, the reviews started pouring in from around the world of positive reviews. And then there was, like, a whole controversy since the last time we talked. Uh, so, you know, well, I know. They I shouldn't know have my- burned the flag on the moon. I thought that that was strong. <laughs> I know I know Mike was kinda high on the film because he loves a good flag burning. So Mike, like I wanna know what you, what you think of Let's the send this in. episode directly to the Daily Caller or yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, first man, um no thanks. <laughs> I, I I I was bored. I understand why people like it. Um, it's technically, you know, Damien Chazelle. For me, the movie reads. It's a universal release, you know. So this is a big studio movie, which I feel like we don't get that often these days in terms of Oscar-y fall movies. Um, but it's a big studio movie. Chazelle expanding his purview even more than he did in La La Land, uh, in just in a different direction. Um, he, he proves himself. If he, if this is like his kind of audition to be a Christopher Nolan, you know, whatever big go-to studio person who gets a kind of blank check and, and can do what he Ron wants. Ron Howard type. Yeah, yeah. Ron Howard, mm-hmm. exactly. This is it. I mean, because mm-hmm. it is technically well-made. I just, I didn't connect to it emotionally. I spoke in, I mean, you, Mike, I know you felt differently. Krista Smith, our West Coast editor for the magazine, she loved it. The critics in Venice loved it. So I might just be out of step with them, but um, I think it's going to be big no matter what I thought of it. Yeah, a lot of people at Telluride really liked it. There's a lot of film lovers there, a lot of people who go every year, um, and it's interesting talking, chatting with those folks, and, you know, somebody said, it's the right stuff, it's not quite as good as the right stuff, and then people were like, well, the right stuff is the greatest movie ever made, and it's like, okay, so therefore, it's <laughs> so close. So that's the baseline we're going with, that's what the we're, right stuff is the best movie ever made. So for that oh. audience, you know, I think it delivers in a, in a big way, it's certainly, you know, those folks were saying it's a lot better than, you know, Apollo, whichever one it was that Ron Howard did. But, but you know, I think, like, at some level, Chazelle's kind of chained to Ryan Gosling's 
acting decision making, um, which makes it slow. And you're either you're either in on that or not. But Ryan Gosling is really in a phase of his career where he's just like, how much of a cipher can I possibly be and still keep the cameras rolling? Um, and I think that that may be a, quite a good fit for Neil Armstrong. But I think it, it makes it, you know, it, it's the, the, the pacing of the film is, I think, slow for partly for that reason. And then at some level, I think, Richard, you pointed out, like, there's a lot of trips to space yeah. and um, and each one is a set piece with a lot of loud noise and jangling and, and a lot of it is shot inside the cockpit or whatever you call that which I think is both a decision artistically and a money it feels like a budget thing. decision yeah honestly. and a budgetary yeah. thing and it does feel that way so that's maybe not the best but, but I think you know I think it's moving in a kind of glacial male emotion way you know like it's it's a story about men who really can't deal with emotions but have to kind of because they're trying to accomplish this thing that that kills a lot of them basically yeah no and and, and they do do a decent job of keeping the light shining on the home situation with Claire Foy I thought that that was actually a nice yes. thing that the movie did is not it's not just these guys going around showing off you also see what the cost is at home and how much work and 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 emotional labor and other kinds of labor that Claire Foy is doing as Neil Armstrong's wife and with, yeah. with two kids at home. Yeah, no, they give her stuff to do. Um, you know, you think about Kathleen Quinlan in Apollo 13, Oscar nominated as the kind of worried wife. They kind of just expand on that. And, you know, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, 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 I think that you're right, Mike, that the movie does hinge on, and Chazelle has to rely on what, what, what Gosling chooses to do. And he, in my mind, he chooses to do nothing. I mean, it's such a recessive blank performance by design because that's Neil Armstrong was that kind of laconic man, a few words kind of thing. But like, you got, I, I just feel like there are this, these scenes with him and Foy where Claire Foy is just throwing stuff at him and he's just like, Standing there, and I, I, you know, and it's Which a choice. I think is sort of the point I of know, the story, but, but like, it's, it's just it's, for, yeah. for, as, 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 in terms of cinema, it's just like what are we, what, what, what am I looking at? <laughs> yeah, I think you either buy yeah. the idea that it's fascinating to watch Ryan Gosling try to process emotion and fail, or or you don't. You know, yeah, and that's if, it. It does build to something I think is pretty moving. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I don't want to spoil what it is, but you know what I'm talking about, Mike. Like, is it the moon landing? Well, so it's so I'm gonna I'm gonna ape, ape my own Twitter joke. It's when they go to the moon. He and Buzz Aldrin they do a production of Julius Caesar where there's a Trump lookalike <laughs> as Caesar. Yeah, yeah, and then they, they put uh, a, a balloon of Trump like and then the they one say from London on, yeah. the, on the moon, and then they say something mean about Tommy Laren. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that the award season strategists working on First Man were just like giddy that Marco Rubio weighed in on this non-controversy or is it all a little too much too fast for to get to that phase of award season in September or August really? I don't think they want this to be a uh, partisan movie, but I actually kind of don't know why they didn't just show him planning the flag. Maybe they did want it to be a partisan thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's because, and hopefully this isn't a spoiler, that like once they get to the moon, which they do, by the way, they, they <laughs> unless you talk to Marion Cotillard, who thinks otherwise, they did get to the moon nearly 50 years ago. Um, okay. <laughs> but I think it's such a personal moment for Neil Armstrong in First Man's version of the story that like when he's at the moon, he has other things to attend to, personal stuff to attend to that isn't about Buzz Aldrin bouncing around and planting a flag or whatever we do see the flag it's there yes. in a very striking shot yeah. that, that, that holds it lingers for a few seconds like it's not you know they're not trying to obfuscate anything yeah but i think it's it, 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 this is a movie unlike 
other movies about like a huge coming together to tri- triumph, you know, achieving something for America for whatever. This is very much about Neil Armstrong in a personal way. Um, yes, and so I think that like that's that's why they didn't show it because and so and and I think to that end uh, it's about a scientist more than a patriot, which I think is what yes. Ryan Gosling was trying to say when he said I don't think he thinks of himself as an American hero. Um, but it seems to me that Universal, at least, I'm sure, would like a lot of people in you know red states to go see this movie. And so I don't I don't think they particularly want to this. To, this is not like one of those things where you play for the controversy to drive the base because I don't know how many people in blue cities are going to go see this movie. Right. They want the American sniper audience. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and as Tony Scott from the New York times pointed out in, in a piece, it's a conservative movie in its depiction of the home life and American, you know, whatever, like it's, it is absolutely the red state kind of movie. It just like, doesn't have the one sort of like, onanistic like America like sticking a thing in the moon like yes. the Michael Bay <laughs> shot like that's not there but like everything else is yeah it's actually it's a little sad uh, to me that if you can only do a conservative movie where it's like ludicrously jingoistic and everybody's like yeah ejaculating on flags or not doing that because that would be bad well Mike you just spoiled a huge scene yeah. <laughs> oh that's the climax we're building towards okay um, the other movie I wanted to ask you guys about which seems more emotionally accessible and definitely more female is the favorite um, people I haven't heard a single person not say that you know say that they didn't love this and it seems like uh, of all of Yorgos Lanthimos's movies this is definitely the most accessible so give me your your favorite hot takes I think it's great I think I said in my review that it is his I think his most successful uh, accessible rather uh, film I, I dare say it's almost commercial it's um, you know it's it look it has a few impediments against it it's got a weird script it's set in the early 1700s you know it's it's I guess ostensible lead Olivia Coleman is not the biggest star. It's other leads Rachel Weiss and Emma Stone are. But that all said, like it feels like you know, it's fun in the way that Dangerous Liaisons is fun, but it actually it isn't quite as melodramatic as that movie. It's been compared to All About Eve by a lot of critics. Um it just has this like energy to it that if you can la- if you can sit through the first 5 minutes and not lose focus, you're rewarded I think for the rest of the movie. Yeah, mm. I I really enjoyed it, but I do have some qualms about it. To me, it's very it's still pretty dark, pretty absurdist. Um, you know, it's more accessible than than Killing of a Sacred Deer or even The Lobster, but um, it's still a pretty dark, potentially off putting film if you're not sort of in on the joke. And I and I'm not sure what would make you in on the joke, but maybe living in New York or L.A. and going to a lot of theater. <laughs> You know, because even some of the kind of like Western San Diego type Telluride folks were a little bit like, that was really weird. And I don't know if I liked it because it's it's dark as hell. And there's there's a risk of a bait and switch where you get like a kind of a jolly Royals audience going in and being like, what the hell is happening here? But I I thought it was great. I thought it was awesome. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. I think that all three of them could be nominated. Yeah. And and I think well, Richard, let's talk about your theory for Olivia Coleman because yeah. I have possibly a counter theory on okay. this. Okay. Yeah, so my theory out of the festival or immediately after seeing it was like if they don't run her in supporting they're crazy cuz she'll totally win. You know, it would be a bit of category fraud, but like it's it's a movie with three leads and Olivia Coleman who plays Queen Anne to Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz's, you know, rel- you know, respective schemers trying to get Queen Anne's affections, and 
the first two thirds of the movie are much more Rachel and Emma. And then the last third is completely, I feel like, taken over by Olivia Coleman and, and her amazing yeah. performance. So I feel like you could call that sporting, but like yeah. I think Fox Searchlight is not not on my wavelength. Well, I ran into I ran into somebody from Fox Searchlight mm. who was like, "What do you think? What should we do?" Like they oh. still hadn't decided yet. <laughs> well, so I, was like, well, I love this point in the season where it's like, yeah. "I have to fact this. Can I make this happen?" So I was like, "Talk to Richard." I mean, Richard really thinks you know, go for the category fraud, take it, and then yeah. um, and then somebody else thinks that they should run her in lead and that she'll win and that actually lead is less crowded than supporting this year, which yeah. I need to get more background on that. But either way, Olivia Coleman really feels like someone who could win an Oscar for yeah. this for this movie. I, I, I think it will be a Best Picture nominee, probably. Um, I don't know about director. I, yeah, obviously, five is a tough you know grouping to get into, but I think that I could easily see the three of them getting nominated. And I can easily see Olivia Coleman actually like winning a statuette. Well, I, I am like this podcast has definitely broken me uh, emotionally, intellectually, because as soon as I saw the buzz come out about this movie and the equally buzz for three actresses, I was like, but what are they going to do category wise? It was like my first reaction <laughs> to the favorite. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> so if they if they were to run Olivia Coleman in lead, would they then run the other two in supporting? Is that less of a category fraud situation? I think you have to run. Yeah, I think you have to run two supporting and one lead. The argument for Emma Stone is that she's. Theoretically, it's her arc that the story tells, right? Mm -hmm. She arrives at the palace. She's the inciting event. Like she's yeah. the kind of she's the, the the new thing addition to the ecosystem and what and what changes it. So like but I all feel three like she's have an arc. All three, it's yeah. it's true. It's an it's a tricky movie. And the two are fighting over yeah. Olivia's affections, so or such as it is. Yeah, but it's funny, Mike, that you brought up you know some of the Telluride audience that you know. So Telluride, you know, all film festivals you wait in line and you talk to people in line. But Telluride especially, it's a more intimate festival. People really want to talk about what they've seen. So you just have these more conversations. And these are some really fucking rich people who like <laughs> have spent thousands <laughs> of dollars to spend Labor Day weekend up in the mountains watching movies. And they and, are. And there's a whole there's a whole culture of it being a cineast yes. heaven. Like they're all self-consciously cinemaphiles. Yeah. And so I think that it's interesting when you have a movie like The Favorite that alienates those people. Because yeah. like those are people who are far less, I think, open to being alienated than other, you know, like I were far less likely to be. They, they'll, they'll seek out weird stuff. They'll seek out foreign stuff. They'll, you know, they they these are people who are who are used to difficult cinema. Yeah. Uh, and so if the favorite, which, you know, anecdotally, I, I spoke to people who were, were not on its wavelength. If it didn't get those people, maybe I'm wrong and it's not actually as accessible as I think it is. Yeah, you know? I think I, it might even just be like a West Coast, East Coast thing. It's because it has very dark, yeah, like UK, East Coast, New, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. American. Atlantic Ocean. Not, it's not a Pacific movie. <laughs> it's a, it's a mid-Atlantic <laughs> humor. And I do hey. think a lot of the kind of Western folks were like, what in the hell is this yeah, thing? Yeah. You know, um, not that they're offended. They're just like, that's not their speed. So I don't know. But then I don't know what that means for the Academy because there's a, a lot of Academy members yeah, who live in Orange Coast. County. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's opening the New York Film Festival, too, so that's going to be an interesting vert. Like, the Lincoln Center crowd sounds pretty similar to the Telluride crowd in that way. Uh, and uh, they, I, but like, I think like a, New said, York, a New York theater crowd will will really appreciate That'll this, play I well think. at Lincoln Center. Yes, I think so, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. this, is, this is similar to the conversation I think we had last year about The Post and Shape of Water, where we were like, One's a New York movie, one's an LA movie, and we know how that turned out. Joanna, end, just so. stop gloating, okay? <laughs> I'm not gloating. <laughs> 
We all know you called that in like October. I did not call that. (laughs) Okay, but but, well, let me throw out a a theory. Right now, with knowing only what we know, which is not a ton, to me, the best picture contenders are Black Panther, A Star Is Born, um, The Meg, Happy Time Murder, (laughs) (laughs) Roma, First Man, and The Favorite. Yeah, does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds. Nothing else from Telluride. You guys think would. uh, would make its way in there? I don't think the front runner, which is good, which is Jason Reitman's movie about Gary Hart, I think that's more of an acty screenplay kind of call. Mm-hmm. Um, Same with Old Man of the Gun. Old Man of the Gun, which, you know, talk about that was supposed to be an easy, like, T ball setup. Like, that was going to be, a, yeah. you know, and the audiences did not like it. Uh, a mm. lot of people I spoke to were like, I thought it was going to be more fun or whatever. They didn't like its kind of ruminative, quiet tone. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted like they wanted Robert Everett in a bank heist movie, right? And it's not yeah. quite yeah. that. Yeah. So, but I think I think those are the, the the ones that you said, Mike. I think feel like that's where we are. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. I mean, that uh, leaves room for like an eighth grade nomination or like something weird, you know? Yeah. Um, or like or um, a quiet place or or a quiet place or the Dick Cheney movie or that Black no Klansman maybe yeah the Dick Cheney movie is the one that seems to be just hovering out there like no one knows and like anecdotally like Mike like I went you know talking with people at the festival um, you know be they you know critics or people otherwise in the industry talking about all this you know stuff as you inevitably do everyone said oh but don't forget the Dick Cheney movie you know what no one said to me was don't forget Mary Queen of Scots <laughs> that yes. movie oh. seems to have dropped from anyone's anticipation because there's something that, that movie like in its choice not to come to festivals it, it, I feel like it's gotten a bad reputation even though no one's seen it um, which is so obnoxious of us but it's it's hard not to kind of use that as a shorthand because there's so many opportunities to premiere at a festival yeah yeah and you know and there could be myriad reasons I mean, Phantom Thread didn't premiere at a festival and it's a wonderful movie so yeah. like who the hell knows yeah. but, um, but was, was the other one that, that people I think are waiting to see is if Beale Street could talk but mm-hmm. there is this notion that it was it was that Telluride passed on it and that therefore there must be something really wrong with it uh, there's also Widows on the Horizon, which yes, I think we've talked about widows. as maybe being more commercial than mm-hmm. um, than an awards thing, but it's uh, it also hasn't been yet seen at any of these festivals. Um, can um, and st- we should note that you guys didn't see A Star Is Born. It was at Venice, but not at Telluride, so that's Correct. still well, uh, I mean, I saw a, a question mark for us. I saw it when I finished editing it. You know, <laughs> I was doing some color correction on it and stuff. Yeah, so that's the last time I saw it. Um, I saw the trailer and I'm ready to <laughs> yeah. give it Best Picture nomination. Um, on Friday, I'm seeing that, and then immediately after, I'm seeing Vox Lux, the uh, Natalie Portman pop singer movie. So I'm going oh, wow. to be in heaven on Friday. Um, can I stump for a movie that I saw previous to Telluride, but that world premiered at Telluride? It's a documentary called Free Solo about a rock climber who is this guy, Alex Honold, who is, I think, like 31, 32, um, who is the first and only person to scale El Capitan, which is the 3,000-foot rock face in Yosemite National Park, uh, without ropes. He did it without ropes. So he risked death to do this insane thing. It's a fascinating documentary. It's going to be on... National Geographic is releasing it theatrically at the end of September, so people can see it soon. It's great. We photographed them, uh, him and his girlfriend and the filmmakers in Telluride. Um, and anyway, I love it. The filmmakers are a married couple, which I find fascinating. They did a uh, this film, Maru, a couple years ago that premiered at Sundance. Uh, they kind of have like the adventure documentary space to themselves, which makes me fascinated by this. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? 
We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I don't know if my perspective is warped by being with our photographer, Justin Bishop, who was obsessed with them and went out again for a second shoot with them, climbing uh, like some horrifying rock face. I was like, <laughs> thankfully, I have a movie to see during this time. Um, but yeah, it seemed like everybody was talking about Free Solo a lot, the whole festival. Um, yeah, that I, think, I feel like, yeah, that was talked about a lot. Obviously, Roma was first man... What else? The, Anecdotally, the I mean, uh, Joel Edgerton thing. I think oh, God's Boy Erased. I was just going to ask you about that. Boy Erased. Yeah, Boy Erased is good. It's very solid. I mean, it's like, um, I mean, I, this is an unfavorable comparison, maybe. I don't mean it unfavorably. It's like, you know, issuey TV movies that used to exist in the 90s that mm-hmm. would like win Glenn Close and Emmy, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, like yeah, that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but like done on a more prestige scale. Um, yeah. And, you know, there are some tough moments in it. It's a solid movie, and I think that something I said in my review was I, as a long-out, comfortable gay guy in his mid-30s, like, that's not necessarily a movie meant to sort of say anything new to me, but, like, a kid who's gone through that is going through that, uh, and, and, and also a parent who's inflicted that on their kid, like, could get a lot. I mean, it's about gay conversion therapy, if people aren't aware of it, but, like, um, they could get a lot out of it. I more appreciated it than I felt it, if that makes any yeah. sense. How's our, how's our boy Lucas? Oh, he's really good. The, all the, 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 thing, the acting in the movie is really great. Like, Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe play the parents, and I think that Russell Crowe actually has the best bet of being nominated because he has this one big scene at the end with Hedges where... I don't, it's a memoir, so I'm not spoiling anything. It's basically the son who has been put into conversion therapy post that saying to his father, if we're still going to have a relationship, this is what it's going to look like. And it's them kind of coming to terms with each other it's beautifully acted by both Hedges and Crow and I think that's the scene that gets Crow the nomination hmm. oh cool oh, yeah. that's not Hedges dad <sighs> not uh-huh. yeah not Hedges because I because the movie suffers from a similar thing that a very th- similarly themed movie called Miseducation of Cameron Post which came out this summer and won Sundance uh, suffers from is that its central character is kind of a cipher like yeah. he's like there are other people in his orbit who are interesting and dynamic and he but because of the way the character has to function in the story which is like our lens into this world he doesn't have a lot of personality yeah. and so I don't think there's a lot for Hedges to play that's a big problem with memoirs adapting memoirs yeah. because you're, the narrator is not necessarily the most interesting person yeah um I saw two films back to back about um, artists in the uh, behind the Iron Curtain escaping to the West oh, yeah. uh, which was interesting and I think well, one's called Cold War, which is by the... Pavel Pavlovsky or something. You, yes, yes yeah. who directed Ida. And that's a very cool... Another black and white film. Beautiful uh, black and white. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really gorgeous. And then the other one is The White Crow, which is um, Ray Fiennes directed this ballet dancer named Oleg Ivenko as Rudolf Nureyev. Uh, and that one is... Um, and, and, it's about and, him defecting, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Ray Fiennes is in it as the ballet teacher speaking only Russian in the entire film. I was like, wow. Okay. 
That's impressive. He's in the Voldemort makeup, which is weird. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could see, I think more Cold War, more likely to get a nomination well, I mean, for yeah, he won, foreign language. You know, for Ida. So yeah. he's, yeah. do you want to sing one of the Polish folk songs, Mike? <laughs> yes, actually. Yeah. Thank you for teeing that up. Uh, well, Mike, the, the lead in Cold War, I believe, was who inspired Danny Boyle to quit the Bond movie. He wanted to cast him as the villain and the producers essentially said no. Is he worth uh, that kind of uh, paycheck loss? Wow. Um, he is, uh, he's very good. He's very good. Although the, the, I think it's the actress in it who is really the kind of revelation. Uh, Polish Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> she looks like, um, Patricia Arquette, actually. Her name me. is Joanna Kulig. Uh, and yes, she's quite striking. And, and she, um, the whole movie hinges on her having like it. You know, and so thank God she actually has it. You know what I mean? It's a movie about everyone who sees her is like, wow. But you have to have that, which is actually, to be honest, my problem with um, the Gary Hart movie. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. You had a yeah interesting well, it's point just about that, that. It's just that Hugh Jackman, I think, is is actually one of the most charismatic people alive. But in this he's role, he's the greatest showman. He's playing. <laughs> he's playing. He's so focused on playing the arrogance of Gary Hart. That that's really all that comes through, and you don't really understand why all these people were so devastated by this collapse. Because you're sort of like, yeah, this guy's a dick. It's kind of like, do you remember <laughs> anyone who's watched The West Wing? There was all this talk about a Rob Lowe's character being the most brilliant political mind of his era, and it's like, could you show us that though? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know? that was what happened on Studio Sixty Two with Sarah yeah. Paulson's character, and all loved to Sarah Paulson, but like it was, uh, why is that an Aaron Sorkin thing? Yeah. And the thing is, there is a Sorkin vibe to the front runner, um, and yes. it's, there's also a Robert Altman vibe. But like, I think you're right, Mike, that like I really appreciate Hugh Jackman's performance in that movie because it's not. We think of him as the greatest showman. We think of him as you know. Jean Valjean or you know Wolverine or whatever like these kind of iconic big characters and this is him being quiet dialed down more reactive than he is active you know and um I think he's really good at it I think yeah. he proves that he's a versatile actor in the movie but is it does it have the pop that it needs to um win you know or get nominated for awards I don't know Yeah to me it's like the the whole problem with the film that you face as a director going into it is okay, I've got a guy who's going to cheat on his wife and act like an arrogant prick the whole time and everyone still has to love him mm -hmm. and root for mm. him. So who can I get? I guess I better hire Hugh Jackman. That's literally the only person who can pull it off. But I think even Hugh Jackman couldn't pull that off. It's, it might be the script. It might be the the, the just... You know, it might also you be have where have we are, like as people, like yes. you know, like that we 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 know this tune, man. Like we we you that's know, true. <laughs> and 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 to tell it in any sort of sympathetic way, it's hard now because you kind of watch it and you're like, this fucking idiot. Like why? Like right. come on, man. You know, mm -hmm. it, it brought to mind you know um, John Edwards or you know any you know any number of people who have let their libidos sort of not just scuttle their own political career, but really harm the people that they are trying to represent, right. you know, like because of Hart, the film sort of argues Dukakis got in and was definitely going to lose to Bush. And then we had Bush, you know, so like, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's a frustrating movie. It's, I think it's a good movie though. I, th yeah, I, I like it. It's definitely, yeah. it, it, it's, it's good overall. It's really enjoyable. That's an interesting preview point. of how we might feel about the Dick Cheney movie when it emerges in a few months uh, as a kind of the, the period of Bush era revisionist history we have and whether or not we want to spend two hours watching Dick Cheney. Uh, yeah, it's a good a, question. A similar problem. It's a, that's a very good question. And can you do anything that's remotely sort of accurate without um, going into full caricature and making everybody hate the main character? Well, if there's yeah. anyone who I trust to be subtle with that, it's Christian Bale. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, neither of you guys saw Destroyer, right? That was didn't fit into your schedules. Well, no. I mean, it could have fit in my schedule. The problem is, is that like the, the the screenings for that were at late at night. They were like ten thirty screenings, and the first one. I was supposed to see immediately after Roma. And as I said earlier in this episode, yeah. Mike and I staggered out of that thing. And I was like, I just need to go home. <laughs> yeah. I just need to go home and, and, and mm-hmm. write the review. Um, so no, I didn't see Destroyer. The reaction seems to be Nicole Kidman's great. It looks good. It's a pretty traditional kind of dark cop movie. Mm-hmm. I'll see it at yeah. Toronto. Uh, and I guess we should talk about uh, Melissa McCarthy in oh, yeah. Can You Ever Forgive Me? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is Marielle Heller's follow-up to Diary of a Teenage Girl with a script co-written by Nicole Holoff Center, who will be on this podcast next week, I believe. Um, mm. It's a small movie, but it's a good movie. It's a comedy sort of in some senses, and it's a Melissa McCarthy character that we've seen before in some senses, but then some sort of an added element past that. And she's paired with Richard E. Grant as a, um, as a sort of friend slash devil on her shoulder. Uh, and it's a great performance by him. I think there's supporting actor buzz for him for that. But the problem is it is small and kind of specific in its story. And, you know, again, going back to the anecdote of the line, people I spoke to in line who had seen it were like, eh. You know? Oh, really? And I think that's mm. I think that, that eh is something that that movie has to kind of combat in Toronto as well as yeah. the frontrunner has to combat that same thing mm-hmm. where it's like, it's mm. good. You know, yeah, and it's right. good is like a terrible tone right now in award season. Yeah. You know, to it's strike. Like a four star Uber rating. Yeah, you're like, yeah, sure. You're like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we should note that these, like, Toronto can really be a different situation. Like, we, you know, we get reactions out of Venice and Telluride. Those are generally just smaller audiences. Toronto is a ton of people. It's got an audience award, which is kind of famed for propelling films into the best picture race. And sometimes, like, Toronto critics can be like, well, I don't know, you guys all love this in Telluride, but it's not for me, or the opposite. Like, it can yeah. change a lot in the next couple of days. Yes, they're, they're both very, I mean, Telluride is a very specific environment with a pretty specific audience. Um, so I think that that's right. Well, but people are saying, though, that Melissa McCarthy could get a nomination, right, for well, Best Well, I mean, Actress? look, the Academy likes her. She was she w- w- got a rare nomination for a comedy for Bridesmaids. I mean, yeah. so few comedic performances get that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there's a definite chance. But, like, you know, I think that Toronto offers that movie and the front runner and other things yes a chance for a bigger audience but also toronto is such a big festival that it's also very easy to get lost in that and when you have things right. like widows and beale street and 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 a star is born playing there yeah how much room is there for other stuff i mean we'll see but like it's uh jonah hill's skateboarding movie which oh. i actually think <laughs> looks awesome personally <laughs> it is it is made for you it's a mike movie <laughs> it really is mike skate punk days it's like are, uh, kids without the extremely um off-putting sort of aids um <laughs> subplot well well we think <laughs> yeah we actually who knows we'll find <laughs> we out i don't know <laughs> So just quickly, we've talked about some of the titles that weren't uh, at Telluride or Venice, but will be at Toronto. Uh, anything, uh, Mike, Richard, and I will all be on our way up there. Uh, anything that you guys have in your sites that we haven't talked about yet? Um, well, I mentioned it briefly, but Vox Lux just premiered at Venice Tuesday of this week. And it got good reviews from the people I wanted to get good reviews from. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know if it, I mean, people are saying that Natalie Portman is playing a kind of mix of Lady Gaga and other pop stars. And I'm like, that sounds fascinating. Um, especially when we have Lady Gaga in the Oscar race this right. year. Um, so I, I'm very eager about that. Obviously, Beale Street. But the one I think I already mentioned a couple weeks ago or last week is this Peter Farrell movie Green Book, which seems like a very straight down the middle sort of, Oscar-y movies, you know, 60s kind of race relations, sort of comedic, but also serious movie with Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali, a recent winner. 
anyway, that's I'm, I, that that's one of them. Sort of most curious about because like that feels like something that could win the audience award and 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 ride mm. a sort of hidden figures wave to mm-hmm. glory. How about you, Mike? Uh, I am actually intrigued to see Jonah Hill's skateboarding '90s skateboarding movie, um, or whatever that is, 2000s skateboarding movie. And you then, have a story. Oh no, it's, it's called right? Mid '90s. <laughs> oh yeah, it's great. It's yeah. called Mid '90s. Um, I got to see Stars Born. I got to see Widows. I'm hoping to catch Beale Street. I don't have any like interesting things to say at this juncture. I, I, I honestly, <laughs> I rather like get there and hear what people are talking about and have holes in my schedule to fill it in. To be yeah, honest. and start chasing down tickets. Um, I wanted to bring up, I read, I think at Joanna's encouragement and possibly on the air during last week's show, I, I read The Hate You Give, which is the uh, YA novel. Oh, that was yeah. a huge hit. Um, and we've talked about that and how that adaptation is coming out. I thought the book was really great. I'm really intrigued to see uh, how it comes out on the screen. The casting is really good. Having read the book now, like Common as the like sensible cop uncle, it's like, yeah, oh God, of course you get Common for that role. So uh, I'm excited to see how that goes. And again, Toronto being in like a big audience kind of space, it does seem like something that could really succeed there. Totally. Oh, I want to say the um, another book adaptation that I mentioned last week on air was The Sisters Brothers, which did better out of Venice than I was afraid it would. Like in terms of people are just kind of like, huh, I like that. Seemed to be the general uh, review. So I'm really excited to see that eventually. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that's a Jacques Audiard film, um, which is interesting, you know, that he's making a Western. Um, yeah, Joanna, the, the Venice response to it has really piqued my interest in it. Our own Cameron Collins will be reviewing it from Toronto. Well, everyone can look forward to hearing uh, much more from us next week as we've seen a whole lot of movies and uh, catch up on more of what's going on out here. So, yeah, keep reading uh, VF.com for all of this Telluride and Toronto coverage to come. Uh, we'll have videos. Mike, do you want to talk about the, the video suite that's to come and, like, all the cool people we'll be talking to? Yeah, watch out. This year we're going to do a handful of long-form interviews. So Chris Smith is going to really spend some time sitting down with some of the biggest people who are there. Um, and I think each one of those videos is going to be worth watching in full. Maybe we can uh, highlight some of that here on the show to give people a taste. But um, but that's the idea. Is instead of interviewing everybody, we're really, really being ruthlessly uh, selective. And, and we're hoping that people will get a kick out of really going deep with some of these folks. And we're, gonna, uh, we're also going to do a video where we follow Mike as he skateboards around Toronto in, in, <laughs> in baggy jeans. No, I, I kid, but we, the three, you, Mike, Katie, and myself will... I think be in one video, maybe doing a sort of recap of things, or am I wrong? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The little Goldman video you've all been waiting for this whole time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we'll have we'll have a, a broom with a picture of Joanna taped to the top. You know, so beautiful. We'll Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that does it for this week's show. Read everything as we said, and find us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and review. Tell other people that this is the place to catch up on all this awards buzz. It can be kind of hard to keep track of this time of year. Um, you can find us all at VF.com and on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Richard. Rylaws. And Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Joanna. Uh, this. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best review Little Gold Men has gotten this year goes to Joanna Robinson. Nice. Guys, I'm so honored. Thanks, guys. <laughs> We're glad to have broken you emotionally <laughs> and intellectually. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. 
Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. 